Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Gospel according to John chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 35. John 6, 35 to 40, please give your full attention to the very word of God. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. By far, the best Christmas special on TV is A Charlie Brown Christmas. It is well-loved by many people, but especially by Christians, because the pivotal moment in the show is when Linus recites from memory the text of Luke chapter 2. He tells of the great news, the good news of great joy that was announced by the angels that the Savior and Lord had been born in the city of David. Several years ago, I read an article about the show from a Christian perspective, and, and the author focused upon what Linus did while he was reciting that passage from Luke 2. He pointed out that when he recited that passage of Scripture, he dropped his blanket. Now, the author points out that that blanket, if you know Linus at all, that was his security blanket. He had him with him always. As a matter of fact, he fought tenaciously if Lucy or Snoopy tried to take it away from him. The author's point was that Linus dropped his blanket as he read the account of the gospel to get across the idea that our true security is not in anything in this world, but it's in Christ. Now, when I finished reading that article, I said, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure that that was the intention. And, you know, it's a nice idea, I love it, but was it really intended by Charles Schultz or whoever put the show together? But then I was watching it again this year, and I noticed something when it came to that scene. Do you know that the exact moment when Linus drops his security blanket is when he says the words from that passage, fear not. Fear not. I'm convinced. <laughs> I also know that Linus was the resident theologian of the Peanuts gang, often quoting scripture and meditating on deep, profound, philosophical thoughts. There's one strip in particular that maybe you've seen Linus and Lucy are in their living room looking out the front window while it's raining. 
And Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign of that promise is the rainbow. And Lucy responds, you've taken a great load off my mind. In the final frame, Linus says, sound theology has a way of doing that. There is a profound connection between sound theology and our security. The deeper you go into sound biblical theology, the deeper your security will be in this world. The last few weeks, we've been looking at the biblical issue of comfort. Where do we get comfort from? We're born with this huge internal hunger to be comforted because we are sinners living in a fallen world under the curse and life is hard and we suffer and we long for comfort and we go to our blanket, we go to our teddy bear, we go to our relationships, we go to anything in this world that can give us a moment of comfort, but we find out very quickly that those moments of comfort pass. And we're left hungry, we're left thirsty for security, peace, comfort. We saw last time, a couple weeks ago, that Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation, in me you will have peace. Theology is the study of God. It's not some esoteric, abstract thing that has no relevance to life. Theology is the study of your creator, your sustainer, your judge, your redeemer. That's what theology is. And the deeper you dig into the study of God, the greater your anchor on truth will be. The greater your security. The greater your comfort. This morning I want to focus on one aspect of that gospel story or that gospel theology that should give us the greatest comfort in life. But instead, too many Christians either ignore or in some cases, many cases, actually deny that the Bible teaches it. It's that key foundational truth of Scripture that permeates all of Scripture that my salvation, my hope of being reconciled to God and living forever and being free from sin and death is based upon God's choice of me, not my choice of him. Therefore, my comfort, my peace, my security is based in God's will and not mine. John 6 contains, and really the whole Gospel of John, but particularly chapter 6 and this whole section from chapter 6 to chapter 10, contains some of Jesus' most direct teaching on the sovereignty of God over the process of our salvation. It's a deep truth, and there's a lot of mystery to it. What's mysterious to us, what's beyond our comprehension, is that we make freely chosen, we, we make decisions that are freely chosen, we take actions that are freely chosen, yet somehow what the Bible teaches is that God, in an overarching way, is sovereign over all of that. Nothing surprises him. Everything happens according to his divine plan. 
I don't understand that. I'm a tiny, puny little human being. My brain is very small. I cannot understand how God can be totally sovereign over everything. Everything happens according to his will, and yet my choices, my decisions are freely chosen based on my will. I don't understand how those two things go together, but just remember we're talking about God here. Not only does the Bible reveal God to be totally, absolutely sovereign, but it also reveals him to be three persons and one God. I don't get that. Do you get that? Can your logic comprehend that? Can you hold that in? The Bible teaches us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Can you comprehend that? Neither can we comprehend how God is sovereign and we're still fully accountable for freely chosen actions in our lives. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together. I don't know how, but I know they do because the Bible teaches both of them fully and equally. But we're talking about comfort. Again, I don't want to dwell in the abstract, the high levels of human logic to try to grasp this because this teaching is not given to us as an intellectual exercise. This teaching is given throughout Scripture to comfort us, to give us security, to take away the stress, to take away the fear, to help us to rest in our salvation in Christ. Well, how does that happen? Well, let's look at this passage. In chapter 6, in John chapter 6, it begins with Jesus' incredible miracle of feeding well over 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and a, few, and a couple of fish. An incredible miracle. There are 12 basketfuls of bread and fish left over when he was done. But what happens after that is the crowds that had received this incredible meal, the crowds wanted to make him king. Well, of course they did. Who doesn't want a king who has absolute power, who can feed you and clothe you and heal your sicknesses and diseases and even raise you from the dead? Who doesn't want a king like that? A king who can give you that earthly security that you so deeply long for. The things, the, the illnesses, the, the strife, the struggles, the death, all that, you know, who doesn't want a king who could make you comfortable in this fallen world? They wanted material, earthly comfort and security. But Jesus rebuked them when they tried to make him king. Jesus said, you know, you saw the, the, the provision of this abundant fish and this abundant bread. You saw it as a way to have your earthly needs met, that that's what I'm all about, but that's not why I'm here. You misunderstand my mission. I'm not here to make you comfortable in this world. I'm here to save your soul. I'm here to bring you spiritual life, not physical life. In verse 33, verse 35, you have Jesus making one, the first of his seven great I am statements in the book of John. I am the bread of life. Sure, he can provide bread and water and whatever else he wants to provide for your physical life, but he says, I am the bread of life. I am the one that gives you lasting, eternal satisfaction, security, and comfort. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, if you have truly committed your life to Christ, you have chosen to follow him, to walk in his ways, to live through Christ. If you've chosen that, then you know that comfort and security. You, you sporadically experience that comfort and security. Often you go to him for that spiritual bread, that life 
that he is, let alone gives. But there are many other times that you go back to your old ways for comfort. You go to the things of this world for your comfort. You go even back to your old sins seeking comfort. How can we be sure that if we have experienced his grace that we're not going to lose it? That there's not going to come a day in the future where we're going to walk away from Christ and lose our status of being saved in him. How do we know that? Well, Jesus, in this passage, and probably not, my, probably not the first passage you think to go to for this teaching, but in this passage, he gives us three solid reasons for us to cling to, to trust in, to rest in, to know, to have comfort in the God's sovereignty over our salvation. And the first truth that he gives us is that God is the one who initiates our salvation. God is the one who initiates our salvation. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What I want you to notice there carefully in the language is that Jesus doesn't say, all who come to me will be given to me by my Father. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father gives the church to Christ and then the church comes to him, not the other way around. God initiates our salvation. Jesus is going to elaborate on that idea a few verses later. Look down at verse 44. There he said, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That translation of the original Greek in that verse from Greek to English is probably not the best translation. The word draws is actually a little weak. A lot of Christians read that, and what they hear in their head is the synonyms for draw of the Father drawing people to Christ. They hear words like invite or entice or woo people to Christ. But if you look at how that Greek word is used in other places in the New Testament, you get a better sense of what it means. In John chapter 21, Jesus gives his disciples, after his resurrection, he gives his disciples a miraculous catch of fish. And in that text, it says that, they were, that the disciples were not able to haul in this massive catch of fish. They were not able to drag in the nets because there were so many fish in the net. In Acts chapter 16, it says that the apostle Paul was dragged into the marketplace of the city by the owners of the slave girl out of whom they had cast a demon. The Apostle Paul was dragged into the marketplace. Another place where it's used is Acts 21, where the mob in the temple dragged Paul out of the temple. So you could actually accurately translate that verse that no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent, him, sent me drags him. It reminds me of, if you read Surprised by Joy, the, the uh, biography testimony of C.S. Lewis, when he describes his conversion from being an atheist to being a follower of Christ, he says that God dragged him kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Now, there's a lot of truth to that, but there's something missing from what he says there, something that's not quite accurate, because God doesn't drag anybody into the kingdom or he doesn't 
compel anybody to come to Christ against their will. What he does is he changes their will. He initiates salvation by sending his Holy Spirit into the cold, dead spiritual heart of a sinner and gives them new life, gives them a new heart so that they have new desires and a new will that wants to come to Christ. That's how the Father drags us to Christ. It is a sovereign work of his will. We will not be saved unless God first changes our hearts. According to Paul, we were born dead in our transgressions. We were corpses at the bottom of the grave. We would not respond to any offer of life and salvation if he did not first make us alive by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How could C.S. Lewis be in the kingdom of God unless he first saw the kingdom of God and wanted to enter into it? And that's what happens when you're born again. It's a work of God, a sovereign work of God. For many Christians, the key moment in their salvation, if you were to pull any Christian off the street and ask them, what was the key moment in your salvation? They probably would tell you their conversion story when they heard the gospel and made a profession of faith and believed in Christ at first, that's probably what they would point to as the key moment in their salvation. But that's not a biblical perspective. That's what I believed when I first became a Christian. I heard the gospel, lights turned on, I understood it, and I committed my life to Christ. I thought it was just a really good choice that I made. Matter of fact, I remember early in my Christian life, I had a preacher say, you know, for assurance of your salvation, for assurance of faith, what you ought to do is go back to that place where you made your profession of faith and drive a stake in that place. And then later, when you doubt whether you're really saved or not, go back to that stake and look and say, no, I've committed my life to Christ. But that stake would be driven at the wrong place for my insurance. Do you know where that stake should be driven? When there was nothing to drive it into back before creation. According to Scripture, the key decisive moment in all of our salvation actually took place before the world was created. Jesus refers to this in his prayer. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for the church before he goes to the cross to save the church. And in that prayer, in the beginning of it, listen to what he says. Talking to his Father in heaven, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now that's the time frame he's talking about. The time when he was together with the Father before the world existed. Before creation. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. Now that key moment in our salvation is what Jesus keeps referring to in this passage that we read. The moment when the Father chose a people for his son, Jesus Christ, and gave them to his son. It's the people we call the elect of God, the chosen ones, who were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians 1 is talking about. Ephesians 1 is really clear on this issue, where your salvation originates. He says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The key moment in your salvation happened before creation when God chose you and gave you as a gift to his son. In verses 38 and 39 that we read a moment ago, again, in light of that, listen to what Jesus says. For I have come down from heaven, there's the Christmas, there's the Christmas message, there's the incarnation. He existed with the Father as the Son of God, eternal Son of God. He came to earth. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Hear what he's saying. The ultimate cause of your salvation isn't your choice, an act of your will. It is God's will in eternity. Again, going back to Ephesians 1. Paul says, in love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. On what basis? When you read that statement, God chose us before the foundation of the world to be his sons, to be adopted into his family. On what did he base that decision? Many Christians would say he based it on his being able to see the future and see that, you know, at the end of the 20th century, Dan Keel is going to make a decision for Christ, and I'm going to choose him based on that future decision Dan Keel makes. And that means that my salvation is based in my choice, not his. But that's not what Paul says. Listen carefully to what he says. In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There is no cause of your salvation outside of the will of God. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, before I was taught these things, I had such a small view of God, but as I began to see the sovereignty of God over all things, my view of God got so much bigger. He didn't get any bigger, but my view of him got so much bigger. This is the God that Isaiah talks about in chapter 46 when he says, I am God, this is God speaking directly to Isaiah, he says, I am God and there is no other, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And there is nothing in the plan of God more important to him than the salvation of his people through Jesus Christ. He will accomplish it. And Christ will not fail to fulfill the mission given to him by the Father. This is what Paul, and Romans 9 was the chapter of Scripture that finally caused me to humble myself and bow before what the Word of God clearly teaches. So if you want to really dig into this, go to Romans 9 and try to understand it. It speaks of these deep, mysterious truths. But in that chapter, at the very key point, the the turning point of that chapter is in verses 15 and 16 of Romans 9, where it says, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend upon human will. What's the it he's referring to? It's salvation. Your salvation does not depend on your will, your choice, your decision. It depends upon God's sovereign will to have mercy towards you. You know, I was struggling with this in college. And if you're struggling with this teaching, maybe it's new to you this morning, 
or maybe it's relatively new, you've heard something about it, but you just have really struggled with believing this is what the Word of God teaches. I empathize. I sympathize. I feel your pain. I spent two years fighting this. I argued with professors and roommates, and, that, that I, you know, and I finally, after two years, really, I'm arguing with God's Word, not with people. And, you know, one of the things that one of my roommates said to me that, that struck me to the core he said, Dan, you, you believe that God wanted nothing more than to save you. He loves you, he wants to save you, and he sent his very son to die for you that you might be saved. He wants nothing more for, than for you to be saved, but you, by your own will, can thwart God's will? You can say, God, no, I know that's your will, that's your plan, but I don't want any part of it. I can thwart the will of God. And it was that phrase that stuck with me. How could I ever thwart the will of the God who created the universe? I can't thwart his will. God initiates our salvation. It started before creation. The second truth that Jesus gives us here is that God is the one who sustains our salvation. Now we know that the work of saving us was done by Christ alone. We didn't do anything, as Pastor Ben said earlier. We did nothing to save ourselves. Christ did all the work necessary. He was incarnate. He added to his divine nature, a human nature. He lived a perfectly obedient life, and then he offered up that perfectly obedient human life on the cross and died in our place and bore the penalty of hell that you and I deserve in his body on the cross and died for us so that we would be forgiven. And he gave us the gift of his perfect righteousness that we receive by faith, and he was raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. That was the work of Christ. And then, though, he went on to promise another comforter. And that also comes from the Gospel of John. He promised a comforter. You see the connection to our main point here. He promised a comforter to give us peace and security. The Holy Spirit. And the job of the Holy Spirit, the mission of the Holy Spirit, is to give faith, the gift of faith. That's what Ephesians 2 says is that faith, we don't, we don't get any credit for our faith. That's not something we conjured up. It was a gift given to us when it, the Holy Spirit gave us regeneration, a new heart. When we were born again, it was a gift. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit, from that point on, his whole mission is to deliver you safely into the eternal kingdom in the state of perfection. He, the Spirit of Christ is our comforter. In verses 37 and 39, look carefully to what Jesus says there. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. I want you to think about the implications of that statement. If any of those unknown number of elect that God chose before the foundation of the world, if any single one of those is lost, if any single one of those ones chosen by the Father and given to the Son walks away from Christ, denies the faith, and and dies in rejecting Christ, Christ has failed. Christ has failed his mission. It was the will of the Father that he deliver every single one of those given to him by the Father to the fullness of salvation. 
He says, I will never cast out anyone who comes to me by the leading, the drawing, the dragging of the Holy Spirit. And I will lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. Christ cannot fail in his mission. He never will. I know that for some of you, you're thinking now about people that you've known that profess to be Christians, who maybe sat in Bible studies with you, stood beside you in worship and praised God and, and served beside you in evangelism and outreach, but at some point they walked away from the faith. They turned their back on Christ and they rejected him. What happened there? Didn't, weren't they lost? Did Christ fail? Well, there's, again, there's mystery. We don't know hearts. Only God knows hearts. But the scriptures seem to clearly teach that they must never have been truly saved. Their faith was never genuine. They weren't truly trusting in Jesus for their salvation. It may have looked very good to us on the surface, but as God knew their heart, their faith was not real. That's what John is talking about. Again, the same, God, the same apostle who wrote this gospel wrote the first John, which is all about assurance of faith, by the way. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, listen, he's talking here about those who were teachers in the church, not just members of the church, but teachers in the church who became false teachers. They taught the gospel, they proclaimed the gospel, but then they ended up turning from the gospel and walking away from the church. Listen to how John describes them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. How does he know that? Because he knows that Jesus can't fail to deliver every last one of those that the God Father chose and gave to his son. He cannot lose a single one of them. So if someone appears to us to be lost, it's that they were never actually saved in the first place. Well, that's a hard teaching. There's a lot of hard teaching in this, but I, again, I want you to stay out of the abstract and the logical issues involved in this and get to the heart of it is this is comfort for those who truly believe. Christ can't lose you. The Holy Spirit will not let you go. Sure, you're going to wonder. Sure, you're going to go back to the ways of this world. You're going to go back to the things of this world. You're going to even go back to the sins of this world, seeking your comfort from time to time. But if you're truly a believer, if, the, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit will bring you back to Christ because he's promised to do it. God initiates our salvation. God sustains our salvation by the Holy Spirit. And the third truth that Jesus gives us here in this passage is that God will complete our salvation. He will see it through to the end. For emphasis, Jesus says it twice in verses 39 and 40 that he's going to raise us up at the last day. He will raise up those that the Father gave him before the foundation of the world, those that have been awakened by the Spirit to faith and commitment to Christ, God that Christ has promised, I will raise them up at the last day. Not a single one will be lost. They will all be raised up. And he says that they will receive eternal life. Verse 40. Those who believe will have eternal life. Now I want you to think about that word for a minute. Eternal life. Is life eternal if you can lose it? Isn't eternal life, in its very essence, something that can't be lost? It's eternal. And I say this in distinction to what I would call conditional life. Because that's what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, they had life, 
But they did lose it because of their sin. It was not eternal life, it was conditional life. They would continue to live as long as they obeyed, but as soon as they disobeyed, they lost that life. It was not eternal life from the beginning. It was conditional. But Jesus over and over again promises everlasting, eternal life. In John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He's saying the same thing he's saying here in John 6. I will raise him up. He will not come into judgment. I will raise him to eternal life. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Again, the gospel, I mean, John tells why he wrote this gospel and why he wrote his epistles in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, we're going to have our periods of doubting. We're going to have our periods where saying, am I really saved? Is my faith real? And that's, it's a good internal struggle at times when our life, when we do have those parts of life where we go back to our old comforts and our old ways and, and we live as though we don't follow Christ. We're going to have those periods. We have periods where we doubt our faith. We're going to say, is my faith real or not? That's normal. You're going to have those ups and downs in your faith. But what you're going to see is the Spirit is going to continually be building you up. Even those times of doubt and struggle are going to be things that the Holy Spirit uses to draw you nearer to Christ and to strengthen your faith. He will always bring you back. And he will do that until Christ comes back again. And you can have full confidence of that if your faith is real. That's why Paul could say so confidently. Listen to this confidence that Paul has about the Philippian believers in chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Did he say that because those Philippian believers were such spiritually insightful people or they were such committed Christians? Is that why he said it? No. He said it because of the promises that Jesus gives here in the Gospel of John. I know. I see the Holy Spirit working in you. I see your faith giving fruit over a long track record. I know that you're saved and I know that he who began this good work in you will bring it to the completion on the day of Christ Jesus. You will not come into judgment, but you will have eternal life in the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been taught what we call Reformed theology or Calvinism, whatever label you want to put on it, it's really biblical theology. If you've been taught this, you're probably aware of the acronym that we use when we try to teach the different elements of this Reformed understanding of our salvation, TULIP. Each letter stands for a different doctrine that is tied up into this idea of God's sovereignty over salvation. So if you know TULIP, TULIP stand, or T stands for total depravity. That's the dead, spiritually dead state that we're born into. Unconditional election is that choice that God the Father makes before the foundation of the world to give a people, a defined people, to his son, Jesus Christ. L stands for limited atonement in that the atonement that Christ offered on the cross was for that chosen people, particularly. It's a particular atonement for those people that were given by the Father to the Son. I stands for irresistible grace, which is that those who are called by God to salvation, if they are truly chosen, they will come and they will continue to follow Christ. And then perseverance of the saints is that he will bring it to completion. The saints will persevere, or the better 
the way of saying that is that they will be preserved by the grace and sovereignty of God. That's the five points of Calvinism. I want you to just notice that in this passage, there are three of those points here. Three of the five points are in this passage. Unconditional election, God the Father chooses his people and gives them as a gift to his son before the foundation of the world. That's unconditional election. Irresistible grace, all the chosen will come to Jesus. The Spirit will draw all the chosen to Jesus. And finally, perseverance of the saints, none will be lost, all will be raised up at the last day. God initiates your salvation, he sustains it, and he will complete it. If you don't find comfort in that, well, then maybe you do need to question whether your faith is real. Martin Luther wrote on John chapter 6, he was, as he was commenting on this passage before us, he said this, he said, Upon these words I will go to sleep at night and get up in the morning. Leaning upon them when will I sleep and wake and work and travel. For though everything were to go to ruin, and though father and mother, emperor and pope, princes and lords all forsake me, and I had only Christ to look to, yet he will help me. Again, I can't comprehend how my freely chosen actions fit with the absolute total sovereignty of God over all of life, especially my salvation. It amazes me sometimes how Christians want to say he's sovereign over all life except salvation. No, he's sovereign over all of life, especially over the most important thing to him, which is our salvation. But I do know, as much as I cannot understand that in my brain, in my heart, it gives me deep security and comfort. My relationship with Jesus Christ, which is the most important thing in my life, does not depend upon my grip on him by faith. It's dependent upon his grip on me. That's comfort. Sound theology has a way of doing that. I'm going to close with John chapter 10. Verse 26 to 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. Father, as we seek comfort, and we have heard in so many ways we can't find comfort in this fallen world, we certainly can't find any comfort, lasting comfort in our sins, but Lord, I pray that as we come to you for comfort, that we would continue throughout the course of our lives to dig deeper into your truth. Show us the many ways in which your word gives us this precious truth that our salvation does not depend upon us in any way. It never has, it never will. It depends totally upon your loving, gracious work. We don't know why you chose us. We don't know who has been chosen among our neighbors and friends and family members. But I thank you, Lord, that those who have been given as a gift to Christ will be delivered and have eternal life. Father, help us to dig deep into that and to find peace and comfort in that. Help us to grow in Christ by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.